Hi, this is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where you can get connected to a truly memorable meeting and faculty. Today's episode is called Blinded by Noncompliance. I know I've talked about noncompliance in the past, but I came across some notes that I have been collecting on this issue because I struggle with it just like you do. I'm sure you're aware that the data is really quite shocking about how compliant patients are. You know, an old um, consumer reports study showed that patients who went to their family doctor for a prescription for an infection, less than 50% filled the prescription for the antibiotic. They went to the doctor for the antibiotic, but yet only 50% filled the prescription. Our data is about the same. It's about 40 to 60% of our prescriptions are either not being filled or not being taken correctly, meaning substantially less. So this issue of noncompliance is a dramatic one and may underlie some of our difficulties in disease management. You know, the general measures here are pretty simple. It's education. It's handouts. It's often a relationship that really is important in overcoming um, that gap between your writing a prescription and their taking it. You have to recognize the patient's frustrations and limitations and worries, especially if you're a new doctor to them. Yes, they came to see you for relief, but they really came for an explanation and some alternatives and whatnot. They didn't really want to walk away with a handful of prescriptions on drugs that they know nothing about, especially when they don't know you. So you have to recognize their frustration. They have to know your degree of urgency. If this is really urgent, you need to tell them, I know that this is a new thing, but you need to say that if you don't take this, what the consequences are, meaning we need to get a hold of this right quick, or we can sort of, you know, you can tolerate their noncompliance and their slow ascent into disease control. So here are some of my notes on how you can help the problem of noncompliance. Number one, require, mandate, beg that they always bring another person to the visit. Again, that's their personal secretary, their other eyes and ears who will remember all the things the patient will forget. Very, very important. Second, make them bring all their medicines to every visit. This underscores, one, maybe that they're taking too many medicines, and you can help against the third problem, which is reduced polypharmacy, but it also is your chance to educate them on the importance of every medicine, which to take, how to take, when to take, etc. Third, if you're going to prescribe a drug, stop a drug. Polypharmacy is a gigantic problem amongst the people who are not taking medicines. Uh, fourth, if you really think they're not taking the oral medicine, change over to an IV form when possible. That's very possible with a lot of RA therapies. You could use IV abatacid or IV tocilizumab instead of the sub-Q forms, for instance. Next, more frequent visits. That's your opportunity to create a relationship, uh, build trust, and educate the patient and to reinforce the importance of the medicines that you're prescribing. Six, teach that basically taking less medicine is dangerous. Taking less medicine means less disease control. Less disease control means worse outcomes. Patients think it's safer if they take less. Um, and the, again, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the longer they take a drug, the safer it is. Drugs like methotrexate, drugs like TNF inhibitors, etc. Often the longer they're on them, the more that they can be assured that it's got proven efficacy and proven long-term safety. These are difficult issues, but then again, you're a rheumatologist. 
you can fix this. Tune in for more QD Clinics. Hi, this is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where you'll come for the education and the speakers, but you're going to stay for the pearls. A great meeting to be had on March 2021. Now it's time to register. Today's case is Ms. R.A. That's M.S. R.A. And I'm really talking about the combination of multiple sclerosis and R.A. Saw a patient, 36-year-old gal who's had rheumatoid arthritis going on eight-plus years. Clear-cut rheumatoid, seropositive, high titer CCP, erosions, <clears throat> many swollen joints, di really difficult to control. Her treatment regimen, I'm sad to say, has included the following medicines, methotrexate, remicade, plaquenil, embril, humira, simsia, orensia, zelgans, kevzara, areva, <coughs> and then things got interesting. While taking methotrexate and leflunamide and kevzara, and low-dose prednisone, she developed new onset of numbness and sharp pains on her left side, wrapping around her waist, going down her left leg. This was associated with some difficulty in walking, it was associated with um, uh, back pain, uh, paresthesias. She had an abnormal MRI of the brain and spinal cord with demyelinating lesions being found, an abnormal CSF indicative of a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. The question is, why does she get multiple sclerosis? Are RA patients at a higher risk of MS? Are MS patients at a higher risk of RA? Does the medicines that she's been taking or in the past or now, has this, has this predisposed her to developing MS? All really interesting cases. Um, the treatment was that they put her on uh, we had stopped leflunamide because of a potential overuse situation and did a drug washout on that. Um, but she was kept on methotrexate and put on rituximab, had some improvement, and is now being considered for other therapy. So here are the issues. Issue number one, do RA patients have a higher risk of MS? Not apparently so. The converse seems to be true. MS patients do have a higher risk of RA with an odds ratio of about 1.72 or almost a double the risk. When you look at studies of RA patients who develop MS, the data is all over the map. The question may be better framed as do RA patients have a greater risk of demyelinating diseases? And the answer seems to be probably so. But again, not a lot of good research on this. Um, certainly we do know that our favorite medicines, the TNF inhibitors, have been associated with an increased risk of demyelinating diseases, optic neuritis, and multiple sclerosis high on that list for a lot of different reasons. The main one being two different studies. One, um, a, an observational study, I think it was with Remicade, where they um, gave a few patients uh, uh, infliximab to treat their MS and they got worse. And But the evidence was prior to that, that it looked like TNF was possibly involved in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. At the same time, there was a much larger randomized uh, control trial of Lenercept, the predecessor to Etanercept, um, and showing that when it was given to patients with MS, they actually had more exacerbations. So maybe inhibiting TNF might make uh, demyelinating disease worse, and that's why it's in the package insert. That's why I generally don't use TNF inhibitors in patients who have MS, optic neuritis, 
and demyelinating diseases. But I've done a number of um, studies and, and actually some, some uh, FDA MedWatch analyses looking at the rate of demyelinating diseases with all the biologics. And you'd be shocked to know that all the biologics, from the IL-1, IL-6, rituximab, uh, abatacept, there's a big signal there, meaning RA patients come down with demyelinating diseases and neurologic diseases very frequently, at least according to the FDA or FAERS, uh, the Adverse Event Reporting System uh, arm of the MedWatch system, suggesting that maybe RA patients really are at higher risk for demyelinating diseases and maybe even MS. So yes, TNF inhibitors may not be the drug you want to use here, but realize you're not scot-free. Um, it seems like there could be a signal for all the drugs, which means I really wouldn't worry about it. It's probably RA that might be associating with an increased risk of those neurologic complications. So interestingly, in the MS world, they have a lot of drugs that are our drugs. So rituximab is commonly used. You know, they have a lot of drugs that we don't know anything about, like copazone and tisabri, which is natalizumab, which we may know from a higher risk of, of, of PML infections. Um, but ocrelizumab, ofatumumab, these have all been studied in rheumatoid arthritis. Alentuzumab was the original CAMPATH-1 that failed in rheumatoid arthritis and was associated with significant cytopenias. It has been used and is FDA approved for use in patients with multiple sclerosis. Interestingly, this patient is being considered to receive teraflunamide. Teraflunamide, you say? Might that sound a little bit like leflunamide? And you're right, it is the M1 metabolite of leflunamide, teraflunamide, and it's become an incredibly expensive drug to treat um, the relapsing form of MS. And again, I'm sure it works to some degree, degree or else it wouldn't be FDA approved, but they're gonna put this patient on this one. She was already on, by the way, uh, Areva or leflunamide when she came down with MS. They may not have known that leflunamide and teraflunamide, there might be a connection there, and there certainly is. Um, again, the good news is that I, I think that control of the drugs uh, of rheumatoid arthritis through the drugs that you would commonly use probably would go a long way in the control of MS. But patients who are continually symptomatic are going to need to see a neurologist, hopefully an MS specialist, and develop their other targeted therapy. The bottom line is, while there can be overlap on therapy, you often need to treat them separate and distinctly. The rheumatoid uh, being managed by you, the rheumatologist, and let the MS be managed by the neurologist with their many drugs that they have to choose from. Tune in for more QD Clinics tomorrow. This is QD Clinic, and I'm Jack Kush with RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.live. Now's the time to register. Meeting's coming up soon. Today's case is Notalgia. Many of you know what Notalgia is. Others are thinking, I have no idea what that is. So this is really about the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So a patient yesterday came in with a history of POTS, and I don't know what the rest of the history was. It really doesn't matter. If she has POTS or he has POTS, <clears throat> you know they have fibromyalgia. And now you're going to spend the rest of the hour or 40 minutes figuring out what they don't have, making sure they don't have something more sinister. 
because fibromyalgia runs with other disorders and it should be easily diagnosed. I'm doing this one because I'm sorry to say many rheumatologists don't make this diagnosis when they should. So I'm going to give you the benefit of my 37 years, my 72,000 patients seen, and I'll let you know that I made lots of mistakes to get to where I am today. I've missed a lot of FM diagnoses. I don't miss them anymore. I spot them from a mile away. Often I spot them just looking at their survey sheet or their medicine list or their review of symptoms checklist. So let me just in a short few minutes here give you a review of when you know it's going to be fibromyalgia. And when I say that, I mean it's, pro it's definitely greater than a 50% chance they're going to have fibromyalgia. And, and I'm saying, giving you these clues with the thinking it's greater than an 80% chance. If you think I'm wrong, please let me know. I don't like being wrong. I do like sharing valuable information. So clue number one, someone who has a diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, and is taking ADD meds, they're going to have fibromyalgia because their ADD meds sort of ensure that they're not going to sleep well. And then that leads to the cascade of amplified pain, etc. Anybody who has a history of depression, anxiety, and is taking depression meds is already at increased risk presenting to you for the first time with musculoskeletal complaints, they're at increased risk of having fibromyalgia. It may be part of their diagnosis, it may be their sole diagnosis. As I said earlier, someone with POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, again, these patients are at very high risk uh, nobody says this, but it's absolutely truth. More than 50% of patients with Sjogren's syndrome have fibromyalgia. Yeah, I know they have dry eyes and dry mouth, and yeah, I know there's nothing you can do about it. Biologics, DMARDs don't help, but all the aches, pains, and arthralgias is not arthritis. It's all fibromyalgia. I would say 80% of people with Sjogren's syndrome have fibromyalgia. Patients who you have with rheumatoid arthritis or any inflammatory arthritis who are multiple DMARD failures or multiple biologic failures. Patient has been on methotrexate, leflunamide, um, sulfazalazine, hydroxychloroquine, etanercept, adalimumab, infliximab, one IL-6 inhibitor, um, abatacept, rituximab, and now we're considering, it doesn't matter, they have fibromyalgia, um, as opposed to you're waiting for exactly the right biologic intervention to magically cure this. Now, if they got swollen joints, I'm wrong, and you're right. But when they're doing lousy, and lousy is fatigue and widespread pain and hurt everywhere when you touch them, um, metrics. Metrics are the biggest clue. Anyone who does a CDI or a rapid three and the number is greater than 30, they're going to have fibromyalgia in play. Again, it can be on top of their inflammatory arthritis or lupus or spondylitis. Um, my good friend, Mark Cohen, uh, once said to me, he yelled at me and said, you said that Bichette's was fibromyalgia with a canker sore. And I thought, well, gee, it sounds like something I might say. I was probably trying to be funny. Um, but there's truth in my humor, meaning patients who have unusual and rare diseases that present to you, like Bichette's, like relapsing polychondritis, are way more likely to have fibromyalgia than Bichette's or lapsing polychondritis. You do, of course, know that ANAs without requisite symptoms um, for lupus are highly likely to have fibromyalgia. And then I have this very long uh, list of things 
that we know are um, features of fibromyalgia, clues to the diagnosis. First off, everybody that you see for the first time should be considered as having fibromyalgia first, because statistically it's way more likely than a spondyloarthropathy or rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's about as likely as having gout, but everything else it's way more likely. Um, obviously when patients have tons of complaints and nothing to show for it, so when they check every box on that review system checklist, uh, they're likely to have again a rapid three of 47 and um, uh, and numbers that and again lots of information that again they don't know what's important so everything seems important so again a big long detailed history that's very complex um, but yet they have nothing to show for it that's sort of a, a clue a globally positive review of systems we call that notalgia no we call that a positive organ recital um, notalgia, you're probably wondering what that is. Notalgia is when they bring in so many notes, you hurt. That's right. I've had patients come in with gigantic files on a dolly, one of them metal case, two drawer files full of information. Everything's important, but really it's not. How can all that information be important? I don't need that much information in making a diagnosis of cryoglobulinemia with renal failure and missing limbs but it's prevalent in patients who have fibromyalgia. They have a lot of symptoms for sure, but they, again, don't have findings that go along with that. Multiple chemical sensitivities, I'm allergic to everything. Uh, I don't like taking medicines, then why are you taking 11, ma'am? Um, uh, patients who have, as I said earlier, any of the psychiatric disorders or depression or are taking psychiatric meds uh, are, likely, are likely to have fibromyalgia. Lyme disease in Texas. There is no Lyme disease in Texas. Again, it's a rare disorder. Fibromyalgia in Texas is way more, way, 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 way more likely than would be Lyme disease. But yet there are plenty of people who are misdiagnosed with bizarro diseases like Lyme disease. Now, if you're from an endemic area and you've had an ECM rash, yeah, Lyme seems like a good diagnosis. Hospitalized six weeks ago, still wearing ID bracelet. That's without explanation. And maybe the best finding when I'm doing an exam and I start out in my hand and I squeeze that PIP5, DIP5, and they say yes right away. That's worrisome. But when I squeeze when I, on every joint and they're tender, but I'm not feeling synovitis or any kind of uh, malalignment or physical abnormality of the joint, you should suspect fibromyalgia. Again, when they fold like a $20 card table when you touch them, oh, they have extreme hyperkinetic reactions to pain. That's amplified pain from fibromyalgia. Please don't make this mistake. Diagnose and treat fibromyalgia it makes the management of inflammatory arthritis and other diagnoses all the much easier. Tune in for more QD Clinic. This is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow Live. You can register at RoomNow.live. It's coming up in less than two weeks. Today's episode is me being anti-intraarticular. So, since the onset of COVID, all kinds of precautions came into play. Practice changed. A lot of things changed. We were forbidden from doing intraarticular injections electively uh, for many, many months, probably even almost a whole year. Uh, and now I guess we're back to doing them. Some rheumatologists do a lot of intraarticular injections. I have always done a moderate amount. I'm really good at it, so my patients say. Um, but if you look at room now and look up the word intraarticular see there's been a lot of reports over the years about the lack of true efficacy with intraarticular injection 
And with not doing any intraarticular injections in almost a year, um, I've come to realize I really don't need these to manage patients effectively. Intraarticular injections are great temporizing measures, but their long-term benefit is basically zilch. Their long-term hazards are real, but small. So what's the evidence? Um, in 2017, JAMA does a meta-analysis of 27 trials, 1,767 patients. They show that for one patient to benefit from an intraarticular injection as opposed to a placebo, the NNT is eight, meaning you have to do eight injections for one to truly benefit. That's not very good. It certainly doesn't meet my expectations. So clearly, there's a modest or moderate benefit in the first two weeks post-injection, but after two weeks, at three months, six months, and even after, none. No benefit at all. In their study, they showed really no um, side effects of intraarticular injections, but that was not the case with other studies. Recently, the journal Rheumatology in January 2021 did another meta-analysis of intraarticular injections for NEOA, showing it was no better than placebo. So analysis of six trials showed that, again, exactly the same. They looked at 14 um, randomized control trials, two observational trials that basically showed no clinical benefit. Uh, and of course, there's always some like one, two week benefit, but really that there are other endpoints of three and six months, no clinical benefit, but they did show significantly more risk for cartilage loss. And I think that was an odds ratio or hazard ratio of about three and a higher risk of joint replacement of 2.5 suggesting that maybe you're doing injections in patients who are end stage and are going to progress to um, to joint replacement anyway. But it could be that you're injecting the joint and allowing the patient to pound on the joint. Are you not contributing to rapid progression of cartilage loss? Again, this is a supposition, but clearly there's no real uh, benefit, but there is a downside. More importantly, other studies have shown that if you're doing joint injections within three or six months of the need for joint replacement, and this has been shown for both hips and knees, that there's a higher rate of poorer outcomes, including post-operative infection, the need for revision surgery, etc. So while the American Academy of Orthopedics um, doesn't have a view on this, and while the ACR um, and the Osteoarthritis Research Society do have a, the view that there is some benefit to intraarticular inje injection, I think it's important to note the limitations. Um, and again, can you live without it? Can the patient live without it? I do think intraarticular injections are good temporizing measures. This comes up because I saw a patient just the other day who I haven't seen in, in six months, and she came in walking like she just got shot in the leg. But her story was she had a flare of her osteoarthritis in her knees. It was swollen. It wasn't warm, but it was really painful. Now, she could have torn a meniscus. She's got a new effusion there. Um, yeah, it's something I can do to make her better this week, but then you need a plan for the long-term relief, whether that's referring them to the orthopedist or doing an MR or uh, changing up their medical therapy. Um, you know, weight loss always works, but seldom done. So again, I'm relying less and less on intraarticular injections. I don't know about you. I'd love to hear from you. You can actually tell me what you think on Backtalk. That's something you can click on on my website or on the email and leave a message for me, and we'll discuss it in our weekly podcast. Tune in for more QD Clinics.
Hi, this is QD Clinic. I'm John Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live. The meeting's a week away, the best meeting of the year. Hope you'll be there. Today's case is combination biologics, legit or not. So the patient is a 55-year-old male who's had long-standing psoriasis, pretty severe, and really severe psoriatic arthritis with synovitis, deformities, erosions, etc. He's been treated with a plethora of DMARDs and biologics in the past, and he says that the only drug that really, really worked for him and has worked for him has been etanercept. Um, but the problem is that etanercept, not the strongest drug, it's controlling skin psoriasis, really good at joint psoriatic disease. Um, his problematic skin required him to be on another DMARD. So combination regimen was the norm. Many years it was methotrexate plus uh, etanercept. Uh, sometimes we tried other things like leflunamide and cyclosporin. And later we graduated to secukinumab. On secukinumab, he developed really severe colitis, ultimately diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. While it seems it was secukinumab induced, it was later felt because it persisted years it persisted and never went away and required great uh, ultimately uh, more aggressive therapy he's tried on multiple things and it wasn't until he got to uh, tofacitinib 10 milligrams bid the dose for ulcerative colitis that he had great control of the ulcerative colitis uh, and oh while he's doing that he's also taking etanercept at times weekly but for the most part every three weeks or so the question is is this legit can you get away with this? Should this be allowed? I'll remind you that, first off, Zeljans or Tofacitinib is a DMARD. It's not a biologic. So this is not combination biologic. This is combination therapy with a DMARD and a biologic, and that works. We know that works. Um, this is combination expensive therapies that makes everybody nervous. So what about combination biologics? Can you do that? There's lots of animal models that showing that you can inhibit multiple arms of the immune system with great additive benefit. So they are at least um, additive, sometimes synergistic. So in animal models, it is clearly safe and beneficial. There is a sort of FDA stance on the package inserts of TNF inhibitors and IL-1 inhibitors that biologics shouldn't be combined. And that's because there were studies done early on where IL-1 inhibitors were combined with TNF inhibitors. And while it, it didn't show an additive clinical benefit, it did show added infectious risk. Like So from any one drug, the SIE risk was like 2%, but being on both of them gave you an SIE risk of 6%, which is higher, but it's not like life-threatening dangerous either. So... Again, should we be outlawing combination biologics if it wasn't for the money? So in this man, he is doing great on tofacitinib and barely taking a little bit of etanercept. How does he get it approved? Well, his insurance actually does approve it or does pay for it. Uh, um, you know, there are other combinations that are commonly in use out there right now for which there's little evidence, and but there are major concerns about the, the uh, cost of such combinations. But when they don't want to talk about cost because it's uncomfortable, they say, well, what about the safety? Well, you're really talking about cost, isn't it? Isn't that what you're really talking about? So a primalast and a TNF inhibitor. A lot of people are doing that. Or a primalast plus an IL-17 inhibitor. Um, what about JAX, the DMARD, being combined with TNF inhibitors? What about um, IL-1 inhibitors being combined with um, 
other um, biologics, like, as we said, TNF inhibitors. So who should pay for it? If you have very liberal insurance, they'll pay for it. Sometimes patients pay out of pocket for the drug that their insurance is not going to pay for, or they have stockpiled a bunch of it to pay for it for a while, or sometimes you help them out by giving them samples. I think sometimes you're going to have to go to appeal to the payer to talk about this. I have had success taking the tact that I'm treating two different diseases that do not have overlapping biologies, and hence there's not one drug that's going to treat both diseases. That is in play here. This man has psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. You know, they really don't respond the same to all of our drugs. I've often applied this to patients who have auto-inflammatory conditions and man-eating seronegative but erosive RA. So I call this RA plus Stills disease or whatever. You can also say this for IBD plus another condition like rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic disease. That's the tack that should allow for the funding of two biologics. Of course, you do take um, the added risk of, of a potentiation of infectious risk, but there doesn't seem to be any other risk when you add in biologics. But recognize that the added infectious risk is already in play. People with severe enough disease that you want to use two biologics are already going to have a much higher risk of serious infectious events. The question is, are you adding to it significantly? It's possible. And hence, this is a risk-benefit discussion between you and the patient. That's it for QD Clinics. Tune in next week for more great cases.